and welcome to the How CMOs Commit podcast. I'm Margaret Malloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of the leading branding firm Siegel & Gale. From April to August 2020, I interviewed 50 CMOs from around the world as host of the Siegel & Gale Future of Branding event series. Although it pains me not to break bread in person, we've uncovered invaluable insights and memorable human stories during this virtual season. In many ways, this podcast provides an exclusive oral history of how brands and CMOs live in the COVID-19 era. From the decisions facing CMOs during this time to the commitments they are forging for the uncharted road ahead, the conversations are uniquely vulnerable and strategic. Please be sure to listen to the end when I provide my reflections on our discussion. This is how CMOs commit. Hello and welcome to Siegel and Gale Future of Branding Virtual Roundtable, a series modeled on our signature CMO roundtables. I'm your host, Margaret Malloy, CMO of Siegel & Gale. Siegel & Gale is a preeminent brand strategy, design and experience firm. Since the lockdown began, every fortnight, we've hosted five CMOs to learn about how they are leading their brands in the COVID-19 era and beyond. What a difference a fortnight makes. Racial inequality, is at the forefront of all our hearts and minds today, compounding and displacing concerns around the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic impact. On a personal level, this unrest evokes painful memories. As a young student in Northern Ireland in the 1990s, prejudiced, sectarian, violent sectarian conflict mistrust of police and fear of the other was my normal. Not until I immigrated to the United States did I realize that was not everyone's normal. And yet the brutal murder of George Floyd and countless other African-Americans serves as a startling reminder to me that my normal is far from every American's normal and that my understanding of the issues surrounding race is shamefully inadequate. I commit to changing that for myself and for our industry. Conversation is a starting point. Today, together, we are bringing three of our most powerful assets, our power to convene, our willingness to listen, and our voices to educate. Already today, Hundreds of marketing leaders are on this roundtable, and I welcome all of you. Let's begin by meeting our panel. First up, Vino Vijay, CMO of H&R Block, a brand we all associate as synonymous with taxes. Vino, welcome. Nice to be here. So very briefly, I want to get everyone's voice into the room, and then we'll go around and we'll talk to each member in turn. Vino, how are you feeling today? What's your top emotion? 
Margaret, I'm angry, but I'm hopeful. I thought your words to start this off were spot on. And the fact that not only you are echoing it, but so many companies and individuals are echoing it gives me hope for what is to come. But today I'm angry. Thank you. Alonda Williams leads uh, customer experience and member experience for the YMCA of the greater Seattle area. Good morning, Alonda. How are you this morning? It's been a very tough week, both personally and professionally. I am, and many others, angry, but I also feel inspired for change. Thank you, Alonda. Little challenging to hear, so thank you to everyone for being patient with us with the technology. Next, I'd like to go to Cheryl Atkins-Green. Cheryl is the Chief Marketing Officer at Mary Kay, joining us today from Dallas, Texas. Hello, Cheryl. Hi, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you, Cheryl. Where is your frame of mind? I know we talked yesterday. Where, where are you today emotionally? Combination of exhausted, but at the same time encouraged as others are beginning to reach out and express support and a willingness to understand and say more. Thank you, Cheryl. Let's now switch gears and head over to Switzerland, where Andrew Curran, the head of marketing for Lint, the premium chocolate brand, is actually dialing in from his office. Remember offices, folks. They look like this. <laughs> yes. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Good evening. Hello, Margaret. I, I'm good, how thank you. you. How are you and how is Switzerland? Uh, yeah, you know, we're in a different state in terms of the lockdown to uh, the US. Uh, here we are gradually returning to work, and which is really reassuring. But in terms of how I'm feeling, uh, of course, shocked, like all, all of you, uh, from because we see very much on the news and, and so on what's going on. For me, though, the two things that come out uh, in terms of positive feelings, are, firstly, is gratitude. And secondly, is optimism. Uh, it's incidents like what we've had in the last two weeks and in the last few months that make me grateful for so many things that I've taken for granted. My health, my security, uh, the well-being of those uh, close to me, my freedoms, and so on. I think that's important to anchor myself to. And second is around optimism. And I, I've discovered this before, that at times of crisis, while it can bring out the worst in some people, it brings out the best in far, far more people. And it reminds you that generally, there's most people are fundamentally good. And I think with the energy behind the current momentum, change will happen and change for the better. Thank you, Andrew. And finally, I'm joined by Meredith Conti. Meredith leads brand at Tegna, the leading, one of the leading digital media companies. Hello, Meredith. I know you're close to DC. I am, Margaret, and we've been sort of firsthand witnesses to a lot of movement over the last several days. Uh, and I would, I would echo so much of what everybody said, but Andrew in particular with the feeling of optimism, uh, my teams and I are feeling inspired uh, because we have seen so many stories on the ground of unity, witnesses standing up upholding values of diversity and inclusion. And from our perspective as a member of the press, um, we've also seen many people standing up for the rights of a free press and of quality journalism. So I share in the sentiments of those who are 
hurt on the one hand and, and upset and also on those feeling optimistic and inspired for what might be ahead. Thanks, Meredith. So now what I would like to do is speak with each of our panelists in turn and maybe understand as much as we can in five or six minutes, how you're responding to the crises, the crises, right? And how you're creating organizations that are more responsive and perhaps even how you're keeping your teams together in this context. Vino, will you start us off? H&R Block, my gosh, practically in every town in America, my research serves me 80,000 tax professionals. No doubt you're toggling the pandemic, racial injustice, and the economic impact. Any example you'd like to share, or two perhaps, of how your organization is reacting? Yeah, thank you, Margaret. You're, you're right. We are in almost every main street around America. We have 10,000 offices, uh, 80,000 tax professionals serving 21 million customers, all within a period of January to April. And if you recall, it was in late February that the COVID crisis became uh, material. And so that had a fundamental impact on how our business operated, uh, how we tried to create safety and security, not only for our employees, but for our customers as well, knowing that they all have to file their taxes by April 15th. And so there was sort of a deadline looming. Now that deadline got postponed to Jan July 15th. So, so that gave more breathing room but it actually made the amount of change that we as an organization have to, had to make even more intense because now we had to find ways of serving customers to an even longer extent. But I want to start with uh, where you started, which is the death of George Floyd and everything that's happened since. I think one of the reflections I've had personally uh, and our company has had uh, in very deep way is I always felt like I understood racism and the impact of racism, but it was a bit of an abstraction. And what this last week and a half has done is that it's made that abstraction very, very real in terms of the absolute reality for a Black person in the experiences that they have every day that I can never experience directly myself, but just hearing the stories from our own employees that we've been talking to and we've asked them to share more stories, it's been just gut-wrenching uh, because you hear things that you understood in concept, but when you feel that sense of what it really means day to day moment to experience, to be black and experience that racism uh, nonstop, uh, I think is, uh, is just really painful for us. What we've been doing is telling those stories as best we can, partially because it's a way for us to reflect on, on them ourselves, uh, but also to help others understand what our employees are, have felt and are feeling um, so that we might help educate not only our own employees, but the rest of the country in terms of what that feeling is like. Fino, yeah. what role do you believe brands should have in political, social, let's face it, human issues, if any? I think uh, I would separate out political and social in that way. I think brands have an enormous responsibility to the communities and the country that they're in. And the reason is we are a voice. We are a big voice. And, uh, and if we don't use that voice, I think we're failing the, the, uh, the need that not only we all have indi as individuals, but as a country. And so I think we absolutely have to express ourselves and be vocal. And, and the point in, that, in doing that is not to divide, 
because that can very easily be the mindset is, well, if you say one thing, then you're dividing. Um, and so I, I don't say that brands should take a dividing position. I think brands should be direct and straight about what they're feeling with the goal of belonging, that we're all part of this one community. And if we can't talk about it together, then we're not going to succeed at it. Uh, that's our that's our uh, highlight point. We call it belonging at block. And it means we have a very diverse group of employees, a very diverse group of customers across the country, and we all belong together. And that means having conversations. You know, at the outset, you said you were hopeful. What gives you hope? I've seen so many companies, so many people step up and be counted with their voice. And it's a new phenomenon, I think, with this moment. Um, I think this has touched a lot of people in terms of how visceral it really is. And as a result, we are seeing real, honest, more honest dialogue about what people's points of views are, being willing to stand up for it. And I think that's, that gives me hope, because what that says is that we may be at a point as a nation and as a people that are starting to understand and reflect on what we really need to do to make change. So that gives me hope. What's the reaction been to the storytelling at H&R Block? Overwhelmingly positive, but not all positive, as you would expect. But that hasn't stopped us from doing it. And I do want to sort of take a thread from that because this came at the end of a very difficult nine-week period for the company as we were going through COVID. And so this really did test us as a leadership, as a group of people that work together to try and find ways of completely reimagining how we work together, not only in this format as we're doing today, but in terms of how we make decisions and how we move forward and the pace at which we do it. And I'm just incredibly proud of our company, our leadership, our employees. It's just been really gratifying to see. Thank you, Vino. Alanda, YMCA, right there in Seattle. What's the response been? You too are toggling the need for your community, your members, the economic challenges around COVID, particularly young people that your organization supports so well. Any example you'd like to highlight? So many examples and so many emotions. I'd say first, uh, I really appreciated, Vina, I've appreciated your, your comments and I appreciate the empathy that you express. That's so important. And I think for the why, we have an obligation to our community and really to our mission to build a better us. And so all of the work that we do, whether it's COVID related or more specifically related to how we educate and inspire others to be equitable and just, we are about creating community. So I could share lots about what we've done in the COVID crisis and how it's impacted us. But I think the events of the last week have really reinforced to us the need now more than ever to really help build a better us. And in Seattle, Seattle is a really interesting place for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that is interesting about Seattle is people are very progressive. And so we have tried to lead by making sure that we're educating our members about how to be anti-racist. Um, not, it's not enough to just be not a racist, but it's really about being anti-racist and telling stories. And so while we've you know, embraced 
taking care of you know children as a part of the COVID response, we've also embraced our role as making space for our employees uh, and to tell their stories, making space for our employees to express that, you know what, I am not okay. So that's been uh, a, a big part of, of our response. We accept and lean into the discomfort that this may cause, and we want people to feel that, and we want to talk and create space to talk about their emotions. The hope spectrum right now. How hopeful are you? you you've been so directly impacted and you've, you've lived the experience. Is there merit to hope at this time? Well, so many people live experiences. And I guess one thing I would I would offer up, I'm inspired. I said inspired earlier, but it might not be for the reasons that you think, because I don't know that I have a lot of hope about people changing. But I do have a lot of hope that young people, I'm inspired by young people, you know, a teenager and an adult, young adult in my house, they're incredibly vocal. And I think young people I'm so inspired by them. And I think what's happening right now, I'll tell you why. I, I had a conversation in my house and it's interesting because I also am a person who um, had to post on Facebook to my neighborhood community a picture of my son a couple years ago so that no one would call the police on him. This is my son. We have been living here for 14 years. Please do not call the cops on him. He is a very sweet kid. He might look suspicious, but he isn't. So because that happened. And so I live with that in my household, but I also live with Saturday. My daughter wanted to go to the protest and I just had a bad feeling. I was like, oh, I don't think you should go without, you know, you're fearful. And both of my kids went and they, they were so upset. How could you not go? This is so important. And when things started to happen, I, you know, I had a little bit of unease about that, but I've come to this place today where I look at cops have been uh, charged which I don't know would have happened without all of this unrest. So that's great. So I'm inspired by young people. I'm inspired by the action. I'm inspired by what will come out of this. I don't know that my reality will change every day. And what I think is important to say is that it may not always be about an act that's done to me. It is about the pervasive thoughts that I have to keep with me every single day. When I walk out the house and I see someone slow down and look at me strange, I know they're thinking, who's that person? They don't live here. Who do they live here? And I have to carry that every day. Carrie, is my son okay? Every day. So I would say be thoughtful about not just the acts, but also the weight that people have to carry every day, whether something happens to them or not. So, but I'm okay. Alanda, I know it's a, a complex question, but you made an important distinction between being racist and being anti-racist. What's ever so briefly, what's that distinction? I think the distinction is people who, who think they're, you know, I'm a good person, I'm not racist. I, I've never done anything bad to another person and I love all people. That is actually, is actually not helpful. What anti-racist is about being intentional about dismantling systemic racism, being intentional about having tough conversations. It is being actively anti-racist. It's about moving, uh, moving someone else along off the racist continuum. And it takes action. That's the main difference is that one is very passive and 
by being passive, it's not supportive of the movement. And, and then the other is being actively involved in dismantling racism. And so that's a distinction that I would make. And, and just acknowledging privilege is a, there's several great books, but one I recommend in particular, there is a book called How to Be Anti-Racist, and that's fantastic. White Fragility, the author Robin DiAngelo is from Seattle. And so I, we had her in. It's an incredible book because she talks in a language that I could never talk and talks to people in ways that I could never have those conversations. So I would just encourage those who are interested in learning more to read those books. Really, really great start. Clarifying that for all of us, Alanda. So let's now go to Cheryl Askins Green, introduced earlier, CMO of Mary Kay a company that for decades is a leader in the direct selling before direct to consumer was a thing. You know, the founder of Mary Kay Ash, to me, she means so much in terms of giving economic opportunity to all women. Talk to us about how you're processing this and be it the COVID scenario or racial issues or even just economic impact vis-a-vis Mary Kay. Thank you for mentioning our founder, Mary Kay Ash. She started this business to change lives. And our mission is to enrich the lives of women and actually through enriching the lives of women, making the world a better place. And we often talk about pink changing lives. So literally since 1963, we have been a values-based culture, really embracing the values of Mary Kay Ash. One very important one and my favorite quote is to picture everyone with an invisible sign around their neck that says, make me feel important. So as we think about how do we, through our independent sales force, millions of women and some men around the world in more than 35 countries, how do we take that culture and that message and spread positivity and love? And I don't say that in a lofty way. It's love in action and the impact that we have in the community. So, for example, at the beginning of March, one of the things we focused on was to help with the needs for hand sanitizer, not something that we had ever produced, but we have a wonderful manufacturing facility. And once we had permission to make hand sanitizer, made more than a half million units and worked with partner hospitals first responders to get product out quickly where needed, including domestic violence shelters, where too many women and children have had to seek refuge, particularly at this point in time. And then to talk about some of the current events, those principles around respecting others, those don't change. Our opportunity, though, to amplify our commitment to our principles and to our values is really now what we have an opportunity to do. And, you know, in part, when I mentioned before, I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged because we are, for a variety of reasons, embracing our humanity now more than ever. And I know that's the key for for positive change. Ash say, if I asked her, should brands take a stance on racial or social human issues? It would be presumptuous to speak for her. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that she would repeat the, as I said, make every person feel important. And I think that statement in and of itself would be her answer to that question. So while she might not uh, reference a specific 
issue, it's because she looked at the world and people at such a high inclusive level. And if you look at the composition of the independent sales force in the 60s, the 70s, you would see that she walked her talked, she lived those values of inclusiveness and providing every woman with an opportunity to fulfill her dreams and to make sure that they could embrace their life's priorities. Against this backdrop of COVID and the distressing times, how are you keeping, be it the direct sales force or your direct employees engaged right now? We have an amazing independent sales force and our pivot included using every and all channels to make sure that we were in touch with them, whether it was calls, those handwritten notes, our digital channels. My team made sure that we were supporting the independent sales force with the content that they could use to express their personal commitment to their communities, to their customers, to their families. So, you know, their enthusiasm inspires me and my team, and we like to do all that we can to pour that back into them with encouragement, with appreciation, and fuel the confidence that I think we all need at this point in time, that confidence to do our best, to be our best every day. Thank you very much, Sherry. So now let's head over to Switzerland. Andrew Curran, leading marketing for Lind. As I mentioned at the outset, premium chocolate brand. Lockdown happening in the lead up to Easter. I imagine a big season in the chocolate world. And here we are toggling the pandemic and the racial issues and uncertainty here in the United States, the economy. What's top of mind as you think about the response at Lind, especially now that you're back at work, as it were? Yeah. Let me say, first of all, I found it really inspiring what the fellow panelists have said. And I have already written stacks of stuff down that I need to improve my own knowledge on and, and follow up. I feel listening to this that I'm in a little bit of a bubble, a privileged bubble here in, in uh, Switzerland, although, of course, uh, we, we, we see the news with, with shock and, and concern. And uh, I guess what, what I will talk about today is more of the COVID response uh, situation. So apologies uh, if some of my responses might seem trivial in light of the, the, the current uh, situation in the US. Um, so, but let me say, first of all, uh, I, I went through a pretty serious company crisis a few years ago on another uh, unrelated matter. And what I realized in times of crisis is that it, it's no longer about companies and competitors and customers and consumers. We're just all people. We're all just people with our hopes and our fears, with our strengths and our flaws. And we're all trying to do the best we can do in a very unpredictable world. And, and I learned from that as a marketer that you need to, you need to park and put aside the, the business priorities. And you need to connect with each other, with our customers, just as people and show your humanity. And that was... In, even in the COVID context, and of course, it's even more true uh, now, especially in the US, but in the COVID context, it was, what can we do? And the first priority is, 
how do we look after our employees? This is, these, this is our immediate family. And uh, so we, we've said, okay, listen, uh, the first thing is not a single person in the Lint group will lose their job in the COVID context. And we have to get that out as a clear message. And second is the safety of all employees is the absolute number one. No conversation goes past that. Even though we kept production going because we're a, we're, a, we're a food company and uh, food companies needed to continue their supply during this period. So we made sure that all the conditions in the factories, it wasn't a question of cost in the supply chain. Uh, and then, of course, those people that need to work from home had the physical safety. And then the last thing was about the morale. Uh, how do we keep the spirits up in these challenging times? And this was about communication, about transparency, uh, about making sure that even the senior managements uh, connected with individuals and were visible and showed empathy. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was important. And that was the first thing. And then the second thing is, what role can we play in this crisis, what were us as a, a chocolate company? I mean, we can't solve the, the virus. And, it's, and I think it was, it's very important that each company figures out what role they can play. And there's so many inspiring examples, but uh, we're not set up to make ventilators or find a cure. But what we can do, and we don't have a, a, a brand purpose uh, as such, but what we can do is bring small moments of joy to people's lives. And you're right that Easter is uh, one of our biggest periods in the year. And there's a lot of people that couldn't celebrate Easter properly this year. So we made sure that uh, all the health workers in uh, all the hospitals, anywhere near our offices, our warehouses, our factories, got an Easter treat from Lint as much as we could possibly supply. Because I know there's thousands and thousands of health workers. Um, and the second thing is in terms of our consumers, our, our, our fans, uh, Easter is a highlight of the year for many families, with, especially with children under the age of 12. I can tell you, for me, it certainly is. I have four of them. And uh, we said, why don't everyone in the Lint family give tips to everyone outside on how they can celebrate uh, Easter under lockdown? So that's what we did. We, we, we created a series of videos and that you'll see a silly one of me and my kids. And we posted it on, on Instagram and we said, look, we're all in this together. We're all human beings. Here's something from our family to yours. Andrew, just give us a sense for the scale. How many employees? I know your product's available in 120 countries. 14,000 employees uh, is what we have. And we operate in uh, yeah, 100. Good, good knowledge. We have uh, 26 active subsidiaries. Uh, around the world as well. So uh, as a marketing community, we're 400. We have 400 marketers around the world. So You show up as a number of different brands, right? Especially in the US. Uh, US is, is more of an exception to our global model. So our global model, Lint is our, our brand. In the US, we have uh, several other fantastic brands. Uh, and actually, my last role before I came here, I was living and working in the US in the San Francisco Bay Area for Ghirardelli Chocolate. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also in Kansas City. So I know one of my fellow panelists is in Kansas City. We have Russell Stover chocolates as well. And they have a couple of brands, Pangborn and, and Whitman's as well. So Tremendous. Well, thank you for bringing us that moment of joy. Much needed. <laughs> Meredith, let's go to D.C., to Tegna, an entity that vitally important, a media company, 
My understanding is 39% of US TV households have access to Tegna. You also have, of course, radio and digital properties. Tell us right now how you've responded. In a media company, you're on a unique perch. Yes. Uh, in terms of all of these issues. Yes, it has been nonstop for our teams since March. Um, Tegna operates and owns 62 major network broadcast affiliates in 51 U.S. markets. So where Alanda is in Seattle, we own the NBC affiliate. In Texas, we own uh, an ABC affiliate in Dallas, where Cheryl is. And so we have been on the front lines of COVID and of um, the issues of racial equality for, you know, for some time now. You know, our response is really driven by listening, observing, seeing. We have very active social communities for all of our brands where we are listening 24-7 to what consumers are telling us. Our field crews are out overnight covering the viewpoints of many people who are out protesting and raising their voices. So our response is really driven by our observation and our listening of what audiences are saying and doing at this moment in time. But it's been an active response. You know, we have some affiliates that are airing news coverage 11 hours a day. So it's constant for us. You know, in terms of brand, which I know is one area we're all gathering for today, you know, I have a member of my team that says brand is life. And I love that because it really is the heartbeat of the organization. And when we think about covering coronavirus or covering the social justice issues of the day, one of the first things we think about are our core values, right? So if we say that our core value is truth, what does truth mean now? If we say a core value is curiosity, well, what does curiosity mean at this moment in time? So we really stay true to our value sets and apply those to the context. And, you know, every affiliate we have has their own unique set of values. It's different from Seattle to Austin to Jacksonville, Florida. But one of the teams I've been very proud of is our team in Atlanta. In Atlanta, they have a core value of being inclusive and approachable. And so that inspired copy that they're using now, which is use your voice to inspire change. And they are actively inviting consumers in to dialogue and to exchange and to share. And they will stay with that, you know, as long as the story goes on. I think news brands sometimes get the reputation for sticking with an issue only when it's in the news cycle. And I can assure you that for our affiliates, this will not be a short-term story. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Meredith. And that's a very good cue for us to take as I go back around and ask of each of you in turn to think about how you build responsive organizations. Let's start, Vino, well, you, you'll come back to us, please. These are dynamic, demanding, distressing times on marketers. How are we to be responsive to all of our communities, our current talent, new talent, investors, customers, the community at large. How do you think about that challenge? 
I think the biggest thing that we have done, and I think there's way more that we will have to do, but just to start with what we've done to answer that issue, which I think is spot on, is we moved to a, what I call a journalistic mindset model. And what that meant to us in practical terms, and this we started in early, in, 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 uh, early February, going into mid-February when, when things start to get a little haywire, is we recognized that we needed to be moving away from a campaign orientation where the idea was we're trying to convince you of some core thing that we want you to do and go to a model of saying, what do we understand today, this moment, that might be helpful to our clients and our customers, our clients and our, and our employees, and then share that and not worry too much about perfection and rather worry about speed and continuity of conversation. And so that was the biggest thing that we did was we shifted most of the way that we did work within the marketing function so that we could be responsive to COVID in a way that was very, very immediate. That meant you know, fundamentally shifting what people's roles were, how we presented information, how much authority people had to make decisions, all of that sort of came with that. The second piece of it was changing what we did to accommodate for the moment. And so again, that move from a mindset from, hey, we've got this widget we want to sell, so let me tell you all the merits of this widget, to what is the circumstance you're in? Well, the circumstance you're in is you're scared. And at the same time, you need your refund. That was the circumstance most of our clients were in. You need a refund now more than ever. So you need to find a way of getting your taxes done so you can get your refund, but you're scared. And frankly, my tax pro is scared. So how do we solve that? And so the way we dealt with it was we created something called a digital drop-off, and we did it in a matter of a few days. And what we did was made it sort of a little ad hoc. It wasn't a structured program, but we simply said, we're going to allow people to essentially download information, send things via email, so that they don't have to physically go into the office if they don't want to. And at the worst case scenario, if they're unable to do those digital things, that they can drop off their documents and we'll pick them, we'll take them from them in the office and then simply uh, do them, do their taxes for them and then they can do the rest of it from their home. And so all of that was done just in a matter of days, knowing that that was what was needed without worrying about what does that mean for our revenue? What does that mean for profitability? What does that mean for operating systems? We said, we just got to do it. Let's do it. So a journalistic mindset in general is what I would say. Be responsive without alienating segments of your community. That was a point you touched on earlier. Yeah, so uh, I, I didn't hear the first part of your question, Margaret, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume it. <laughs> so I hope I assume it correctly. <laughs> I, I think your, your question was, how do, we, how do we engage in our community and our, with our clients and our customers and as a brand and as individuals without alienating any, any one group? And, and I think the answer to that is intention, number one. Our intention is 1000% that we believe in the virtuous cycle of communities. And that virtual cycle of communities means us as individuals have to care about our community, have to care about our neighbor. And if we can help our neighbor and community and our entrepreneur, that is gonna create uh, growth and success. One of the things that we've been talking about maybe for six months, and it just came home for us in this moment of COVID and beyond, is it turns out that the zip code that you live in, the zip code that you live in can have a material difference, 10 plus years on the longevity of your life. And I live in a neighborhood that I could go 10 miles, ah, less, five miles, and the longevity changes materially. 
And that should be unacceptable to all of us. And so the way that we have been sort of thinking, so we've been talking about that and saying, we're going we're gonna to take that on and say, we're going to start to think about making every block better, which is our, which is our core uh, public platform on it. And making every block better means caring about the virtual cycle of the community. Then COVID happened, and then and then and then we had uh, the the this uh, George Floyd uh, killing, and so the combination of these things has just reinforced for us how important that is. And as long as we are intentional about it, we will disenfranchise some people. So be it. But our hope is that we will educate many more and galvanize them into this cycle that we believe so strongly in. You know, as a marketing leader, what is your personal commitment to being responsive? Well, I, I don't know if it's as a marketing leader or it's just as a human being. So I'll answer as a human being because that's how I feel about it right now. <laughs> and I'll say as a human being, my commitment is that I am absolutely and unequivocally not going to be silent in either my search for understanding or in my explanation of what I have understood. And that's what I know I can do right away. Thank you very much. Alanda, let's go back to you and up to Seattle. Again, you work with a broad-based community. You have many constituents from your donors to your members to your employees and the community at large. How are you being responsive? Anything others can learn from that experience? I do. I will answer your question. But first, I have to take my fangirl moment and say, Andrew... Oh my gosh, lit chocolate balls have brought so much joy to my household. I always have a bag of assorted, always. I have them at my nightstand. I'm sad that peanut butter is gone. I had to get that out because I would not be being authentic if I did not. I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm also sad the peanut butter ones went, but we got many, many more here for you, Yolanda. So, you know, I'm sure we can sort you out. <laughs> I am a huge fan. So get that out. Okay, so back to your question. So first of all, I'll go to something Meredith mentioned, and I think all everyone should do this where it makes sense. And, and Vino obviously talked about it as well. When you think about being responsive to your community, whether that's your employees or the communities that you serve, start with the things you have. Like many of us have mission statements, we have values statements, and at the Y, we have an equity statement that we use. If you start there and say, if we live out this equity statement, what behavior, what does that look like? If we live out these values, what does that look like in this moment and every moment? And if you're rooted in your mission statement, rooted in your values, and if you have an equity statement, then the behavior is what's expected of someone that lives out that behavior. So you can always go back you know, to those statements and if people challenge you, and you can say, this is our mission, and we are living out our mission, or our mission implores us to do this, or to speak out for marginalized communities, or whatever it is. So I think starting there and helping employees and customers know that those behaviors are aligned with the values that you have as an organization. I think that's what helps. Your personal commitment, Meredith. Excuse me, Alanda. Well, you know, it is... Um, I think I've had lots of roles and I've worked for some amazing companies. I think about working at Microsoft and how, you know, it was really important for us to have an equity lens through all of our work. And, and I brought that to my work. I think about other companies when 
I don't always feel like I've shown up as my authentic self. I might have been dealing with something in the back and I show up to work and I'm just, you know, business as usual. Yes, I'll go through and through my day without really kind of I'll have a mask because inside I might have been worried. I decided personally that I'm not doing that anymore. And I've decided that it is important for me to show up authentically Even if I'm in an audience with people that might not understand, but my authenticity, I think, can help other people understand. And so I've made a personal commitment to allow space for my my team to process. Uh, We've made space in our organization of, you know, 4,000 or so in Seattle to process. And I think showing up authentically and letting people know that you are a person, you have feelings, like I'm feeling uncomfortable or recognizing that employees might be feeling uncomfortable and just providing that space, I think is so important. So I've made that commitment to be my authentic self all the time. Thank you. Cheryl, how is Mary Kay Inc. staying responsive to the many communities? We're fortunate that we have eyes and ears in so many communities. So listening to our customers, the independent sales force, we have always made ourselves available our sales force can reach out and they do reach out. So listening, and we've supplemented that with digital listening tools. And literally every single week we are listening for not only sentiments, but vocabulary. We're tracking imagery so that we can make sure that we are in tune with what our customers and what their customers are looking for and needing. But part of that ability to be responsive also means you've got to empower your organization. We very quickly had to, I'll say, put a lot of process and leave it behind in the office once we went you know, to working from home. It didn't mean we let go of the discipline, but in terms of empowering people and enabling them to not only know what to do, but empowering them to do it right now. And I love what Vino mentioned about the power of now, because if you don't know what's next, all you can do is focus on what you know right now, what you have right now, what's needed right now. And what about your personal commitment right now? Well, I feel like Alonda was inside my head. (laughs) I have to echo though, the authority authenticity. And while I would have sworn up and down, I've always been an authentic leader. I now am being very intentional about a level of authenticity that really exposes vulnerability. And and that's not easy for me because for the past 20 some years, pursuing a corporate career as a woman of color, I wasn't allowed to be vulnerable. That was going to be a liability. I need to undo that, not only so that I can bring my full self to my leadership role, but most importantly, to set the example and let my team and my network know how important it is that they bring their full selves um, and bring their best. And that entails that level of vulnerability. So it's something I'm still getting comfortable with, but it's also, I think, unleashing some of my best. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that vulnerability with us here this morning and this afternoon. Andrew, we're getting light on time. So very briefly, we mentioned earlier, your customers are in 120 countries. You've many, many employees. You've invested in community. You've so much to contend with. How are you staying responsive? As as a company? Yes, please. Uh, So I guess probably three things. And I think the important thing is what we mustn't lose is 
the newfound way that we found in the on, in the COVID nineteen crisis. We mustn't just park those and go back to our old ways. Uh, and so the three things for me is about uh, listening and learning. And wow, I've learned a lot uh, even in the last hour. And always be open to learn more. The second is it being about being agile. We've had to be extremely agile as an organization. Whereas we're a traditional 175 year Swiss company, agility is not core to our values. So we've, we've learned to use this muscle we've never used before. And the amazing thing is we can do so much. And so we don't want to lose that muscle and we need to keep practicing it. And the third thing is around a really understanding in the scheme of all the things that the, the role that we can play in these crises, we shouldn't be ashamed about trying to grow our business and win market share. And, and, and I never want that to be a, a source of shame. And on the other extreme, we shouldn't think, hey, us as this chocolate company, we can save the world. But it's about finding the the, the authentic point in the middle. And I echo the, the point my fellow panelists said about authenticity. When we understand this is a legitimate role that we have credibility to play and really do something there, which adds more value than just growing our business and our market share. So, so that's what we're doing as a, as a business. And my personal commitment is to send Yolanda some, uh, some chocolates. Uh, we, love, we love our fans, Yolanda. And, uh, and of course, my personal commitment is also to work on the points I just said to, to move more to action as well. Thank you. Meredith, hopefully the Wi-Fi will be kind to us. How, yes. how, how do you stay responsive at Tegna? Yes, I think what the other panelists said about listening and agility are absolutely key. I think one other thing for us is just staying humble, right? Looking ourselves in the mirror and acknowledging where we might have gaps and then taking efforts to fill those gaps. In order to respond, you have to know what you're responding to, and then you have to be equipped to respond. And I think COVID between work from home challenges or technology challenges, right? That's something that we um, had to look in the mirror as a company and say, what does our tech stack look like? Are we enabled properly? And then with the issues of, of racial injustice and diversity and inclusion, we also have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, do we have the voices at the table uh, that should be at the table? And if not, how do we go about getting them? So those are some some of the the ways, Margaret, that we're looking at being responsive in, the, in these times. Would you share a personal commitment as well? I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I think my personal commitment is to make sure that the function of marketing really remains vocal, vibrant, and celebrated. This is a milestone moment for brands all across the globe. And our CEOs, our COOs have so many priorities on their plate. I think it's up to the CMO to figure out how do you plug in? How do you make sure the function is well represented? How do you make sure that your team is living up to the value sets that we spoke about earlier? So my personal commitment is to make sure that marketing plays its role as an engine of growth and an engine of change. Thank you, Meredith. And I would also invite our audience to please feel free in that chat bubble to share your commitments as well in the same spirit of generosity that our five panelists shared theirs. In listening to the five leaders here today, a single overarching theme emerges for me. It's an abstract term that's been used very often 
and poorly understood lately. In this conversation, it became very tangible to me. And that's the theme of empathy. To me, empathy is about looking at reality to seek to understand others' feelings and to act to connect. While COVID-19 and racial injustice are vastly different issues, both represent a reality characterized by extreme difficulty. How we deal with them represent a choice characterized by extreme urgency. It seems to me that the five leaders today and the organizations they represent are exhibiting tremendous empathy in the decisions you're making today and the commitments you are forging for the future. In my mind, three beliefs stand out in how you are cultivating that empathy as you work to be responsive as individuals and as organizations. Belief one, marketing is a contact sport. You have gained this empathy by direct experience, anchored in a clear sense of values and brand purpose, and buoyed by curiosity and humility. These leaders seek out diverse views. Listen deeply to your teams, to all your stakeholders, and integrate those learnings to your organizations and to the community. And in so doing, you are responding rapidly with relevance and impact. Belief two, empathy is not a goal. It's a mechanism to help organizations accomplish their goals. Five CMOs here illuminate the power of empathy in action. They continually refresh their perspectives, disengage from old marketing plans and paradigms that are no longer relevant to focus on what really matters. And in so doing, you are unleashing inspiring employee engagement, dramatic creativity, and undaunting resolve. Belief three, empathy at scale is an organizing principle. It is an operating philosophy. The five CMOs here implicitly appreciate that empathy is more powerful when it is an organizational capability. Practiced habitually and not a quality of select individuals deployed in a crisis. You recognize that you can't mandate empathy by demonstrating solidarity, challenging old assumptions, and encouraging collective resilience, you are creating a culture where the conditions that generate the kind of culture where curiosity, compassion, and inclusion are expected and are valued. And in so doing, you are building and nurturing empathetic organizations. Thank you, Venu, Alanda, Cheryl, Andrew, and Meredith. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your commitments. And we look forward to tracking your progress as you go along those journeys. Continuing our commitment at Siegel & Gale, I will be back with a special Gen Z edition. 
we will bring children to the conversation. And again, with our pride edition. As part of this forum, we want to be sure that we are sharing views and answering questions that are useful to the community. Therefore, I welcome your feedback. Feel free to share with us in that chat bubble any suggestions you have, or write me anytime at margaretmulloy at siegelgale.com. I now thank my production team, led by Alison Carrion and Ashley Noonan, with Danny Alonso, Kevin Loftus, and Kasia Krejcik. On behalf of all of us at Siegel and Gale, thank you very much. Thank you for joining How CMOs Commit. You've heard the strategic insights and professional commitments of top brand builders from around the world. I hope you also enjoyed my reflections on how this conversation is relevant to all marketers. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And please rate, review, and share this podcast. Until next time, this is how CMOs commit.